Your Honor. S18A0052, Holt Warden v. George Ebinger, Paula Smith for Appellant, Philip Green for Appellee. Ms. Smith, when you're ready, ma'am. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court, I'm Paula Smith here today on behalf of the warden urging this court to reverse the grant of habeas corpus relief to Mr. Ebinger on his Cherokee County conviction for aggravated assault. We have contended that the habeas court erred in two main ways. One, in its analysis of the trial counsel uh, ineffective assistance claims, and secondly, in reaching prejudice uh, from the ineffective assistance claims of both trial and appellate counsel. Um, as we have shown in the procedural history of the brief, and just to briefly uh, note the facts, this incident began as a road rage incident somewhere on a two-lane road in Cherokee County. Um, the accounts of the victim, Logan Lord, and Mr. Ebinger, and Mr. Ebinger's son, who was in the car with Mr. Ebinger, differ somewhat as to what occurred. But what is, uh, I think they were in agreement that even after this ended, uh, the victim, Mr. Lord, had pulled into a Kroger parking lot. Mr. Ebinger saw him and then sought him out and went down to where he was parked and standing outside the Kroger. And this was captured by um, two surveillance cameras of the Kroger video and was played for the jury. And I think that was the disinterested witness. Ms. Smith, the, the videos that were played for the jury, I believe they're exhibits two and three in the trial transcript. Are they in the record before us? They are not, Your Honor. And, and we contend that was part of, part of the reason why we think the habeas court erred in its prejudice determination, because it had less than all of the record. How, how ought we to assess prejudice when we don't have all of the critical evidence that the jury had? I, I think it's a difficult question, Your Honor, and I think with the increasing technology, I know there was a case recently where the court examined the actual video of a Jackson Deno hearing uh, and looked to that itself beyond what had been argued at, at the hearing. Um, I think that ultimately the burden is on the petitioner by statute to prove by preponderance that his or her rights were violated. And I think incumbent upon that is, is getting that in the record somehow, because I think it's becoming more important that the habeas court be placed in the same position um, as, as the trial court, and particularly here, where you had two key pieces of evidence, as well as 911 calls that were played, and uh, I think a, a what they call a police SCAD report, but the jury had actually asked to review those videos. So I think perhaps simply because the habeas court, I don't know that there was a rule in place that required um, the court to have it, but by the same token, I think you can discount some of the court's findings of prejudice because it had less than all the evidence. Um, we do have augmented, uh, in that regard, there was a, uh, after the direct appeal, a petition to reduce sentence, where the same two witnesses that did not testify at the trial that are central to the ineffective assistance claims testified at that hearing. 
and I think we quoted from the trial court's observations in ruling on that, we're not saying and not contended that it's dispositive of the ineffective assistance claims, but this is the fact finder who had the benefit of seeing both the testimony of these two witnesses who did not testify at trial, and having seen that video evidence, and the judge remarked that their testimony was at odds with the video, and she recalled clearly the video showed Mr. Evinger seeking out the victim in the parking lot. And, and the judge was careful not to imply that she she thought the witnesses were being dishonest, but yes, that perhaps their memory was incomplete and that she, and she credited the video over their testimony. Yes, Your Honor. What, what significance should we give that in this procedural posture I, when the habeas court essentially made a different finding? Well, I think that's something that the habeas court could and should have taken into account and didn't. If you review- Do, do we know the habeas court didn't? I mean, the trial, the, trial trans, the, the transcript of the hearing on the petition for sentence reduction was evidence before the habeas court, and we typically assume that a court considers all competent evidence, right? Yes, Your Honor, but but in reading in reading over the the habeas court's lengthy order, the videos fell by the wayside. It's as if it's almost as if they didn't exist. And central to the habeas court's fact findings were was the testimony of these same two witnesses. And we're just simply pointing out. I think you're not you while you are bound under your standard of review by fact findings unless they're clearly erroneous. Your legal conclusions as to reasonableness, your legal conclusions as to prejudice, are not so limited. And I think this is an instance where the, the habeas court perhaps exceeded and should have paid more attention to everything in the record because it's not reflected that there was any any consideration of that in its final order. So typically the state is in the position of arguing that, that we ought not to infer too much from silence in an order about what the trial court did or didn't consider. Um, are, are you arguing that, that the trial courts, that the habeas courts conclusion that these witnesses were credible is clearly erroneous? And I'm, we've not we've not gone to that, Your Honor. I think that you don't have to reach that determination because we're looking at it in context of prejudice, and assessing prejudice from their account, which is integrated into the entire record. And As, so, if, if you have two witnesses who credibly testify that the defendant in this case was actually the victim of of the assault, was not the aggressor. If, if that testimony is credible, you don't think there could be any prejudice from failure to get that into the trial? Not when it's, it, because prejudice is to be assessed by a reasonable probability in light of the entire record and even their testimony. If you look at their testimony, both of them, the, the Ms. Kitchen and her daughter, did not see the beginning of the altercation. Ms. Kitchen testified she was sitting in her car in the parking lot making a grocery list, going to send her daughter in. The daughter's the one who said, hey, these two men over here are arguing. They saw snippets. They saw some. They saw part of what happened. Even Ms. Kitchen testified that her, her view at time was blocked. But neither of them saw the beginning, how, how the victim, Mr. Lord, got there. And that was clearly depicted on the tape. So I think that, yes, you could, you could say their testimony is what it is, but it 
it is not the be-all and end-all of this issue in light of the, the other evidence of record. And in light of the fact that you have the benefit <coughs> of the trial court's observations when looking at their testimony as a basis to reduce sentence. And we simply pointed that out, that this is the one fact finder who has seen and heard everything and found that their account was not supported by the videos. So I, I think it's an issue in terms of fact finding that is going to become more, um, occur more frequently as we're moving further and further into the age of technology and videos and, and the ease with which records are filed electronically and there is access to those exhibits. Um, but turning to the question. Council, one more, one more question about the, uh, the surveillance video. Uh, is there any reason to think that the surveillance videos that were showed to the jury were not accessible to petitioner in these habeas proceedings? Uh, none whatsoever, Your Honor. I, there, there's nothing in the record to suggest one way or the other. They were not. As a matter of fact, we know that it was his trial attorney that first obtained them from the Kroger uh, store himself. Uh, it was not something that the state provided in discovery. They were clearly introduced into evidence at trial. And it's one of those things that, as you know, when you have physical exhibits, whether they're copies, access, where they wind up, is sort of a happenstance situation depending on each case. But no, there's been no contention. There's been no assertion. They were not available to Mr. Ebinger to put in a, as part of the record in the habeas proceeding. And we have simply, again, pointed them out that this was some critical evidence it appeared to be. Uh, again, we, we view this as the truly disinterested witness and, and not Ms. Kitchen and her daughter. Um, turning to the issues of, of the trial counsel claims very briefly, there was a change of counsel after trial. The only issues enumerated as error on appeal were four claims of ineffective assistance of trial counsel two of import, which are that trial counsel did not call Ms. Kitchen as a witness, and that he also, um, when Mr. Evinger said he thought the victim was under the influence, how did he know that? He had some DUIs, counsel followed up and said, do you have any other priors? Um, the Court of Appeals found that counsel had been, trial counsel had been diligent in his effort to try to find Ms. Kitchen, and found that counsel's decision to go ahead and take the sting out of this evidence was reasonable. The habeas court revisited both of those issues, even though it ostensibly said it only had new facts in the form of the testimony of Ms. Kitchen and her daughter to revisit the issue about efforts to call and present her testimony. There was a third new claim of ineffective assistance of trial counsel that had not been raised previously. It was a claim that trial counsel should have filed a motion for pretrial immunity and had a hearing thereon for discovery purposes, would have gotten the benefit of hearing from the victim, get some testimony under oath for potential use in impeachment, basically a discovery tool separate and apart from whether he would have prevailed. Um, and we submit that the habeas court erred in simply going at the outset to the merits of the new immunity claim without conducting any preliminary analysis of whether it was procedurally defaulted. The court is well aware under 91448 well, when, when, when we talk about whether these were actually new facts, what is the relevance, as far as I can tell, the testimony from the Kitchens is in the hearing on the petition for a reduction in sentence is, is virtually identical to their testimony in the habeas court. What is the relevance that that testimony was out there at that hearing to this habeas proceeding, if any? 
I'd, I think, Your Honor, it, it's, it's not certainly dispositive of the issue, but I think you have to look at what, what are the claims that are, that are being raised. And again, their testimony was there at the petition to reduce, which was filed after the direct appeal. You know, there's that statute in Title 17 that allows, I think, up to a year <coughs> after an appeal for a defendant to petition, but they did not testify either at trial or the motion for new trial proceedings, so it was not clearly presented in the context of assessing the performance of either counsel. Uh, but we submit that there should have been some preliminary analysis of whether the immunity claim was procedurally defaulted. And I also acknowledge you had two related ineffective assistance of appellate counsel claims, one being that appellate counsel was ineffective for not alleging trial counsel should have pursued the immunity course. And, is that trial and that appellate counsel himself, his performance was deficient in not securing the presence of Ms. Kitchen. And it is interesting that the habeas court um, elected to credit her testimony about her availability and that she, um, she had, uh, even though by her own account, was living at, had three different addresses. There was the original address of 512 Holly Ridge, which was listed, she was actually listed as a state's witness on the indictment. There were several subpoenas that are in the record that were uh, going to be issued on behalf of the state to this address. D the defense added her at some point uh, to their witness list. Um, counsel even sent her a letter and this came in the record. I've been trying to call you. You don't answer your cell phone. I've been trying to reach you. Please call me. She admitted she was not living at that address. She had a tenant. Her parents who lived two doors down were taking care of her mail. Her father would sift through what was important. And it was almost serendipitous that she got the subpoena to appear at what appeared to be the original a, a trial calendar date in April 2014. She said that's when she made contact with trial counsel. His testimony was consistent with hers except to that point. And he said, I did not talk to her. I did not hear from her. The habeas court, as it is allowed, credited her testimony. And then appellate counsel found himself in the same boat. He could not locate her for post-trial proceedings. He even had a private investigator who also went to the location as trial counsel had, was not able to find her, and then she, after the motion for new trial hearing, realized she'd gotten a subpoena from him. But be that as it may, ultimately, the end of the day, measuring her testimony against the other testimony of of record, we don't think establishes prejudice and a reasonable probability the result of the proceeding would have been different had she testified. We think that regardless of the efforts to find her and whether appellate counsel had her there, that would not authorize under your cases the habeas court to give Mr. Evinger a pass on a new ineffective assistance claim and simply revisit one that the Court of Appeals had decided in the appeal, which was counsel's decision to ask about the priors. The court acknowledged we don't really have any new facts, but we're just gonna throw it in anyway. And that's contrary to precedent. And if there are no further questions, I will save the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Smith. And Mr. Bassett for the appellee. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. 
My name is Philip Green, and I represent the appellee in this case, Mr. George Ebinger. Uh, the court should affirm the findings of the habeas court after an extensive evidentiary hearing in which the court heard from multiple witnesses, it examined the record from the criminal trial, and it examined the record from the post-trial proceedings and the subsequent appeal. But not the whole record, right, counsel? Well, it, didn't, it didn't have the video. The court did not have available to it the video, and one of the questions Your Honor addressed was, was, was the video available to the petitioner? And uh, I can certify that we were not able to obtain both of the videos. We were only able to obtain one video, the other having been lost uh, to time or, or to process, and the video that we did obtain did not show the altercation. Uh, so to both petitioner and to the habeas court, that video was not available. Uh, but in any event, the content of both of the videos was testified to in great detail at the original trial, at the original criminal trial. And in fact, both sides, both the state and the defendant in the case, believed that the video supported their respective positions. That's and throughout true. the trial, throughout the post-trial proceedings, and even at the petition for, to reduce the sentence, both sides and, and the court, the trial court, acknowledged that the video did not show the entire altercations. So when I want to correct one, um, one fact that I believe counsel misspoke to, the, the trial judge in the petition to reduce the sentence, which of course is not uh, a, a hearing to adjudicate the claims that are at issue here, uh, but the trial judge in that case said that the video is not just, is not at odds, it said that the video is at odds to a certain extent with the testimony of both Tammy Kitchen and Cheyenne Kitchen. The court went on to say that she uh, as counsel noted, uh, did not dispute the truthfulness of the testimony. And the most important thing the court said is that looking at the video and looking at the testimony of Tammy Kitchen and Cheyenne Kitchen, the court said there was a conflict in the evidence and that the jury uh, was entitled to resolve the conflict. And the, the judge said, if these witnesses had testified at trial, you know, I don't know what the outcome would be. And that is the critical point uh, at issue in this case. It's the point that this court made in the Fisher case last year. It is the point that the habeas court made in its order in this case, citing Fisher, when the, court, the habeas court said that the jurors who found Mr. Ebinger guilty did not have the opportunity to hear the kitchens testify and to make their own conclusions as to the credibility of those witnesses against the video which captured a portion of the altercation. Counsel, did, did the habeas court apply the correct Bad. legal standard under Strickland? Because the, the standard is for prejudice is not whether right. the jury might conceivably have gone another way, it's whether it is reasonably probable that it would have. Correct, the, the, standard, the court did apply the correct standard, and the standard being whether there's a reasonable probability that the outcome would have been different. And this court has repeatedly said that the standard is not that the, out, that the petitioner has to show that the outcome had to have been certain, or even more likely than not, only that there's a reasonable probability sufficient to undermine confidence in the outcome. And, and how do you assess that when you don't have, before the habeas court, all of the evidence that was before the jury? Sure. In, in order to reach that assessment um, with the video involved, any court making that assessment would be, have to make a credibility determination between the video and the 
testimony of the witnesses. That's a credibility determination that should have been left for the jury, as this court said in Fisher. Now, the, as the aspect that's important for, for this case is that this jury was not permitted to do that. And the court, remember, the habeas court in this case had the trial transcripts from the- But the habeas court wasn't permitted to do that either because, so you've got, you've got the original jury, which had the video, but not the witnesses. And you've got the habeas court, which has the witnesses, but not the video. Right. You don't have anybody that has both and can, and can fully assess them in concert, except for Judge McElyay in the hearing on the petition for reduction of sentence, right? And Judge McElyay noted that she didn't know what the outcome would have been had the jury heard the testimony of the witnesses. And, and that's exactly the issue we have in this case, was the habeas court noted that because of that fact, because, because we cannot say what the outcome would have been, confidence in this jury's verdict is undermined. But Judge McElyay's conclusion was. was to rule against your client. On the petition to reduce sentence, correct. How much detail do we have on the testimony about the video that the habeas court did have? An extensive amount of testimony. In fact, on direct examination, the, the state's key witness, the only witness on the state side who has personal knowledge of the altercation, uh, that witness testified as to his view of what the video showed. He was cross-examined uh, by both Mr. Ebinger's counsel and by Mr. Ebinger's son's counsel as to the defense's view of what the video showed. When Mr. Ebinger testified, he testified as to his view of what the video showed. I believe the police officer may have been questioned on it as well. Do you so, happen to know the record site for where that testimony starts? If not, that, we'll find it. That testimony um, should start in the range of page 100 of day two Thanks. of the uh, criminal trial. Mr. Green, mine is kind of like following up on Justice Peterson and Blackwell and Justice Grant, but of all the judges, Judge McElyay probably had more in front of her than anybody else. Isn't that true? You don't not know necessarily, that. because Judge McElyay, even in the petition to reduce the sentence, was not given the full panoply of what the testimony of Mrs. Tammy Kitchen and Ms. Giant Kitchen would have been. In fact, uh, counsel uh, put on a perfunctory <clears throat> examination of them, which was nowhere near as complete as what was presented to the habeas court in this case, and most glaringly failed to elicit any testimony whatsoever, even at the petition to reduce the sentence hearing, as to the um, extensive or extensive telephone conversation she'd had and the contact she had made with the trial counsel in the months leading up to the criminal trial. But, but that goes to deficiency. The, what I think we've been focusing on, at least in our questions, is prejudice. And from my review of the transcript from the hearing on the petition to reduce sentence, there may not have been as much testimony about what she saw, but she certainly testified that in her view, Mr. Lord was the aggressor, not Mr. Ebinger. And I mean, what, what about that, that what didn't Judge McElyay have related to prejudice that, um, that the habeas court had? Yeah. I, I don't know other than the, the amount of detail that was offered by the witnesses at the habeas hearing. Now, in, in looking even at that issue of what Judge McElyay had, recall she never reached the conclusion that the testimony of these witnesses did not matter. She never reached the conclusion that these witnesses' testimony was wrong or 
um, or that it would not have impacted the jury's verdict. In fact, she reached the exact opposite conclusion, that, that she does not know what the outcome of the case would have been had they testified. And because of the posture of where the judge was at as a petition to reduce the hearing, this precise issue that should have been raised and presented by the appellate lawyer at the hearing on the motion for new trial was not presented to Judge McLeay at that point in time. In fact, the judge made several comments that these, this testimony is not relevant to the issues she had to consider. Well, let's, let's come back to deficiency. The record suggests that, the, that Mr. Ebinger's counsel sent subpoenas to three different addresses, um, and then the subsequent attorney sent a private investigator, and all of that was unsuccessful. It's not deficient performance just to fail to find the witness so long as the attorney takes all reasonable steps that a reasonable, competent lawyer would have taken. What additional steps ought counsel to have taken that they didn't, thereby rendering their performance deficient? Sure, and I think the issue of what steps he had taken to contact the witness became almost irrelevant for the purpose of that discussion once he actually made the contact with the witness. Once counsel made the contact with Tammy Kitchen, once he was, as the habeas court found, uh, once he was provided with extensive information as to what she witnessed and her then existing contact information, including her current address and telephone number, it was impinged upon counsel at that point, once he had the information, to call the witness at trial. And that he did not do. In fact, he told Ms. Kitchen, uh, as the habeas court found in its findings of fact, he told Ms. Kitchen that he would name her as a witness. In fact, immediately after the telephone conversation, he did file a pleading naming her as a witness. He told Ms. Kitchen he would contact her if and when the case was, was to be reset for trial. And Ms. Kitchen testified and the habeas court found that uh, the trial counsel never contacted her again. And, and that leads to the, uh, one of the underlying bases for the deficiency finding, which is not even challenged by the appellant on appeal. In fact, as to the prejudice finding, the limited aspect of, of that is limited argument that is being made in their papers on appeal is that the habeas court erred in determining prejudice because, according to the appellant, the court did not find that had appellate counsel presented the testimony of these witnesses uh, regarding the crime that the outcome of the appeal would have been different. Uh, th th that finding was never made by the habeas court. That's the position taken in the papers. And when we look at the habeas order, that's simply, with all due respect, is in it's incorrect. Uh, the habeas court reached extensive findings uh, that, the, that had the testimony been presented, that there, would, that there would have been prejudice. And it focused its findings of prejudice not just on the testimony from the kitchen's interactions with the trial counsel, but also on the issue of what the witnesses would have said at trial. And those are on... Uh, pages 3 and 4 and 47 through 49 of the order. Counsel, um, did, did you make a record before the habeas court um, to establish that the surveillance videos admitted at trial were lost, could not be now accessed by your client, and um, to try to, to make a case to excuse the failure to come forward with those? No, we didn't. In fact, Your Honor, it was not our understanding that we had a burden to present the videos, uh, number one, and number two, we felt it was sufficient based on the extensive testimony in the trial record regarding the videos themselves that that, um, that that was contained in the record already. In fact, the court did note, the habeas court did note in its order, uh, did note 
did make a reference to the video and did note the testimony regarding the video and that it was incomplete, <clears throat> that it did not show the entire altercation. I mean, I, I think the law is fairly well settled that it is the burden of the petitioner and they need to come forward with the whole trial record. Um, I recall a case decided by this court a couple of years ago where we said as a matter of law, the petitioner did not carry their burden where there was a missing videotape that has, was shown to the jury uh, but was not put into the habeas record. Sure. Yeah, Mr. Green, is it your contention that the, the burden in that is on the other party in the habeas? Uh, Produce the tape? I, I think once our position is uh, that once we've established uh, the, the sufficient record to, for the court to determine uh, whether prejudice resulted from a deficient deficiency of counsel, then at that point, if there was additional information or additional evidence, uh, the respondent at that point in time should have brought that evidence. But in this case, if the court disagrees with that position, uh, the, the correct result would be to remand for the court to the habeas court to consider the video. Now, that raises the problem that we have is that the video, one of the videos, the video that actually shows a portion of the altercation, we were not able to obtain. Um, and that is kind of the problem that we have, that the only video we were able to find uh, did not show the beginning of the altercation. Now, what we do have, I want to correct one uh, issue of fact, what we do have is testimony from Cheyenne Kitchen and Tammy Kitchen that they did, in fact, witness the entire altercation from beginning to end. Because I think that the- Now that's where you and Ms. Smith seem to, to differ because one says uses the word snippet and you use the word all and they're not the, they're not the same. Uh, that's right. In, in fact, I think that there has always been this disputed um, notion that when did the altercation start? Did the altercation start on the roadway? Did the altercation start uh, in the Kroger parking lot? And I think that the if you, it, an examination of the record at a minimum shows that there's a dispute of fact. The dispute of fact is to where that altercation started. Mrs. Kitchen and Miss um, Tammy Kitchen and Miss Cheyenne Kitchen and Mr. Ebinger uh, would have testified, all three of them, that the altercation started in the Kroger parking lot. And um, in, in fact, even looking at the- Well, uh, really it started when the road rage began, wasn't it? I mean, since they pulled into a parking lot. I mean, if you get right down to it, when does it start? It starts when- Somebody said something or did something to somebody else. Right, and, and the testimony from both the defendant in this case and the state's key witness, Mr. Lord, was that they believed that anything that happened on the roadway had ended by the time they got to the Kroger parking lot. So to the extent that, that a... Is there testimony from anybody as to what took place on the roadway? That, that to me, right. And what was that testimony then it, and by whom? It, it was disputed. Uh, there was testimony both from the defendant in this case as to his view of what happened on the roadway, and there was testimony from the state's witnesses to his view as well as to what happened on the roadway, and conflicting versions as to who started um, the, uh, the dispute on the roadway. Um, now, there, the, um, what happened on the roadway was purely contained within the car where the parties were yelling at each other back and forth. Um, at no point on the roadway did anyone get out of the car. That did not occur until the Kroger parking lot where both the state's key witness and Mr. Ebinger both testified that at that point they believed that, the, that anything that happened on the roadway had, had ended. Um, but looking at the issue, and I, I want to address this issue of procedural default that was raised by the petitioner. 
Um, in this case, the trial, the habeas court reached and made an analysis and reached a conclusion on this issue of procedural fault, default. And both parties agree that the relevant standard for procedural default is or to overcome the <coughs> bar of the statute is whether a finding has been made uh, under the Strickland standard. In other words, cause and prejudice can be shown by the cause and prejudice test under the Strickland standard. And if you look at the court's uh, decision in this case, it's very clear that the habeas court reached precisely those findings based upon an analysis of what happened both with trial counsel and uh, appellate counsel. Uh, first, with respect to the claim involving the failure to call the eyewitnesses, the habeas court found cause and prejudice uh, sufficient to overcome the procedural bar precisely because of the constitutionally deficient performance of both trial and appellate counsel. In fact, the habeas court specifically found in its procedural default analysis that the Court of Appeals had no choice but to proceed with a gravely incomplete record as a direct result of the deficient performance of trial counsel and appellate counsel. And in, in that vein, the posture and the facts of this case are very similar to what this court dealt with last year in the case of Taylor against Matoyer where the appellate lawyer in that case uh, was charged, was brought in and charged with proving the ineffective assistance of the trial lawyer. But in the process of bringing that claim, the appellate lawyer failed to put in the record a certain Jackson Deno transcripts at the motion for new trial stage. And the appellate lawyer in that case failed to present the testimony of the trial lawyer himself. And so going up on appeal, this court was looking specifically to the issue of did the appellate lawyer bring the appeal, did he present the appeal adequately? Did he prepare the appeal and present it adequately? And were there claims that should have been raised by the appellate lawyer but were not? And, and this court in Taylor against Matoyer found, uh, focusing on the adequacy of the appeal brought, that the appellate lawyer did not perfect the record for the Court of Appeals because she did not call trial counsel as a witness and because she did not put into evidence for the motion for new trial the, the transcripts from Jackson Deno hearings. And at bottom, the court focusing on the adequacy of the appeal, which is the same posture we have here, found and held that no competent appellate attorney would have asserted an ineffectiveness claim in the manner in which counsel presented it here on appeal. And that's precisely what we have in this case as well. Uh, why? Because the appellate lawyer, Mr. Ebinger's appellate lawyer, did not pursue at all the viable issue pertaining to trial counsel's failure to pursue the immunity defense. And while he recognized the issue pertaining to the ineffectiveness claim regarding the testimony of Tammy Kitchen and Cheyenne Kitchen, uh, he failed entirely to perfect the record as to what they would have said. In fact, he testified that he went forward with the motion for new trial hearing um, because he thought that he could rely upon the unsworn witness statements, witness statement from Tammy Kitchen. He was ignorant and unaware of the legal principle from this court and from the Court of Appeals that an appeal based upon an unsworn police statement is doomed from the start. Um, the, so while he had waited until uh, three days before the hearing on the motion for new trial, and this was critical to the habeas court's determination, while counsel had waited to three days before that hearing 
to subpoena Tammy Kitchen. He did not ensure that she was, in fact, served before proceeding. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Green. Ms. Smith, <clears throat> Just a couple of points. Justice Grant, your question about sites to the record, there's testimony at pages 604 through 607, and this is the habeas transcript numbering, not the trial transcript, um, 661 through 64 and 5, and 687 and 88 about the video. Um, there's some testimony about the 911 calls because uh, that tape was played at 667. Um, but basically, I think ultimately what is clear from even Ms. Kitchen's testimony, because she said at page 23 of the habeas transcript, I heard men arguing. She said at page 29, um, I don't know where the younger guy came from. I don't know where he had been. It's clear she did not witness the altercation from its start. She didn't say that at the, her testimony in the petition to reduce sentence. She simply saw perhaps at most, in her version of events, the victim, Mr. Lord, may have escalated but not begun the incident. And as the trial judge pointed out, the video is clear. Um, and even Mr. Evinger admitted in his trial testimony he sought the victim out uh, in the parking lot. So ultimately, he was the aggressor, and, and that's where it all began. Um, there's never been a, a contention before about whether it was not or the videos were or were not available, but ultimately, at the end of the day, we think the habeas court erred in simply looking at the testimony of Ms. Kitchen and her daughter in a vacuum, and it's clear upon your review of the entire record, the requisite prejudice has not been shown. Thank you. Well, uh, Ms. Smith, what's your response to the suggestion that appellate counsel thought that he could rely on an unsworn witness statement? Does that kind of legal error cause a problem? Well, I think what he did was it was sort of a, it's not that he thought necessarily, he was at least trying to say, and, and his testimony is somewhat equivocal. He said, I had not been able to find her, um, and I at least attached her statement so that I would at least have something. He said that in hindsight, which is not part of the Strickland standard, that maybe he should have asked for a continuance or asked for more time. But both he and trial counsel's testimony is clear that given the videos, which they thought was uh, higher and better evidence of what transpired, Ms. Kitchen's testimony, while helpful, was not as critical. And I don't think he thought that her statement would have necessarily carried the day. I think it was just sort of a, this is what I got that well, I'll go with. Let's come back to the absence of the videos from the record. Um, as Justice Blackwell mentioned, we do have a case from last year, uh, Martin versus McLaughlin, um, in which we held that the absence uh, of a critical video from the record essentially meant that the, the petitioner failed to carry his burden. Is that the rule when the missing evidence is actually missing and could not have been put in the record? Are, are you talking for habeas, Your Honor, or if if there is a a critic, if say the this video was in fact missing and could not have been entered into evidence in the habeas proceeding, does that failure to put a no longer present video into the record automatically bar habeas relief? I, I don't know that I would take it to that extreme, Your Honor. I think that's simply one factual circumstance. But here we just we've 
we're hearing for the first time today that one was not available, that did not arise before, don't know what efforts were made, don't know who was contacted. I don't know how extensive or if all hope is lost in that situation. But I think if, if it is so, in fact so missing, a, re a record should be made to show, no, this is no longer available, and it must be taken into account in considering everything else. So what would you say then to opposing counsel's suggestion that we remand for the habeas court to make those findings? I, I would not be adverse, Your Honor. I think under the circumstances, it's clear it was pivotal, and, and I think that that uh, under the circumstances of this case, we would not be opposed to a remand to at least have the habeas court consider that along with everything else. Mr. Smith, was there anyone who saw the video that could have, I know sometimes you're doing a, in a jury trial, you'll do this, some piece of evidence is in, say, look, I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to let you, you argue, I'm going to let you argue this for a time, I'm going to let you argue. Was anyone who said that who could then argue and the, the court, the habeas court would at least hear them? This is what the video shows. Um, no, Your Honor. The, the record is simply silent in that regard. Ms. Kitchens was the premier uh, um, uh, witness and her daughter. Okay. There are further questions. We ask you to reverse the grant of relief or remand. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Smith. Thank you, Mr. Green. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, well argued. Please uh, be safe going back now. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen,